Has there ever been a time when the challenges we faced as a global community felt as dire as they do today? The two most powerful countries in the world, China and the U.S., are increasingly at odds. There's a kind of cloud of fatalism over the overall relationship. Wars are being fought around the world, and nations are retreating from dialogue that could avert future conflicts. Countries claiming they could be our friends or our allies. We don't really know if they're our friends or allies. So, you know, what's the best thing to do? It's to increase your own security, right? Meanwhile, climate change has pushed the planet towards a tipping point, and global leaders appear hesitant to take significant action. I'm actually becoming increasingly skeptical about what global cooperation looks like. It looks like a lot of sloganeering. It looks like a lot of greenwashing. And democracy is being challenged with a vigor and at a scale that is unprecedented. We should be supporting democracy in the ways that we can around the world. And we're not. This is The State of the World, a series of five conversations hosted by the University of California Institute on Global Conflict and Cooperation. I'm Lindsay Morgan, Associate Director of IGCC. Throughout the series, I've talked with experts from across the University of California to better understand the challenges we face. Although they are serious and even daunting, everyone I spoke with agreed that giving up is not an option. So what can we do? What are the ways forward? This is the fifth and final episode of the series, where we'll begin to answer the question, what now? To seek guidance about how to move forward, given the state of the world, I sat down with former California governor, Jerry Brown. The 85-year-old is something of an elder statesman with a long and varied political career under his belt. He served four terms as California governor from 1975 to 1983, and again from 2011 to 2019. In between, he ran for president three times, unsuccessfully, served as California's attorney general, and was mayor of Oakland for nearly a decade. Jerry Brown is a man who does things, but he's also someone drawn to contemplation. As a young man, he nearly became a Jesuit priest. As an adult, he studied Zen Buddhism in Japan. Forty years ago, he was instrumental in founding IGCC. And so for this series marking our 40th anniversary, we couldn't think of anyone better suited to discuss the state of our world. I began by asking Governor Brown about which of the challenges covered in the series, China, war, climate change, and democratic backsliding, he thinks is most pressing. Overarching is the danger of nuclear blunder. It could happen today, next week. The threat of that colossal calamity, which could involve hundreds of millions, and now with the greater understanding of nuclear winter and its possibility, billions of deaths. So that has to be overarching. Or on another perspective, people say, well, the, the Democratic breakdown in America, the possible election of Trump, all that that in terms of disrespect 
our tradition and our system of law and checks and balances, that is even greater. I'm not going to try to weigh the two. They interact. Now, the antagonism with China uh, continues. And as we could look back in history and say, well, when did World War I, when was it unstoppable? I don't think we ever quite know when we've entered a slide into an ultimate conflict, but we're sliding toward conflict. Whether it's going to be in six months or six years, that I don't know. But when it's absolutely clear what's going to happen between the U.S. and China, it'll probably be too late. We'll be at war. So I'd say the China matter calls out for attention right now. Now, climate is another one. We're sliding each day, each year. It's the load of CO2 and other greenhouse gases in the environment keeps piling up. And the CO2 lasts hundreds of years. So there's no time to wait. That's not going to happen like nuclear. It could all go in half an hour. But it's certainly something that bears response and very much in real time. So I'd say the whole picture, it isn't good. And our own system is more dysfunctional. And uh, the antagonisms are such that people should be profoundly, profoundly concerned. Yeah. So the problems feel kind of apocalyptic. Let's turn to talking about practical solutions. What areas hold the most promise, in your view, for, for global cooperation? Is it climate? Is it health? Where can we work together? Okay, there's not just one area, there's multiple areas. Let's just take China and the U.S. There are so many interactions here. The tariff rules, uh, the restrictions on investment, the efforts to block Chinese technology, national interest, national security, or, or otherwise, immigration, visas, nuclear, climate. There are many areas. And I would say, if we look at the economic, for one, there are hundreds of little rules that we could talk about. In diplomacy, you're always looking for confidence building. What can we do to start building confidence in our relationship? All right, attack some of these tariffs, some of these rules. What are they? What, what's China doing that we don't like? What are we doing that China doesn't like? Let's talk about it in detail, not general, these very wide general problems, repression in China, China, you know, stealing our technology. There's so many things to talk about. The president can decide. He can pick up the phone and arrange a call with Xi Jinping. He can talk to him not twice in person and two or three times by Zoom, but he could talk dozens of times. That's what's required. I don't see that the response is commensurate with the threat economically to the fiscal system or climate or nuclear. But we certainly know what they, they take many, many hours of very intelligent investigation and communication. It's not us against them only. It's, it's, that is a major element, but it's us together. It's interactive. We co-create our own problems. We are enmeshed. We're entangled. And those interactive, escalating kinds of entanglements have to be dealt with. Across each of the issues covered in this series, do you think that 
the primary obstacle to progress is political? Is it technological or is it something else? No, I think the obstacle is just inertia. It's just human beings who are fallible, who are flawed. We don't see clearly. And, and what, looking back in the history, that from earliest times, we were talking about war and slaughter and uh, the competition of all kinds. So it's the weight of history that shapes what we're doing. And you have to have courageous people who have clarity. Albert Camus used the phrase polar lucidity. And from that, I take the idea of really clear, nothing obstructing your view. And we have a lot obstructing our view. A lot of ideology, a lot of images are in the minds of the Congress, of the media. And we need a clear people. We need clear people in the universities, in the commentariat, through the press and journalism, think tanks, as well as in Congress and staffers. Uh, we need people to try to work toward clarity. What is our state? Where, where are we? And where are we headed? And I think uh, we're in a muddle. We're in a real muddle. And, and so I think any effort at reducing the muddle, dispersing it toward clarity is welcome and absolutely necessary. Given the state of the world, and, you know, we all have different spheres of influence. You have a large one. Most of us have pretty small spheres of influence. In whatever sphere we're in, what should we do? How should we respond to these challenges, given the, the circumstances that we find ourselves in in this age? We should strive in our own way to create a more sane situation whether it's at a university or a think tank or in a congressional office in a state, seeking the truth, seeking the, what is the best understanding of where we are. And the understanding is never 100% accurate or complete. So striving to see, to understand, is a constant challenge. It's, it's lifelong, and it takes a relentless effort it's much easier to fall into the comfort of your current assumptions, predilections, and the ways you, it's comfortable. It's called habit. Habit is the way we survive. We can't constantly be innovating every hour of the day. So we rely on our habits. But our habits of thought have to be challenged when they are dysfunctional. Schopenhauer says in his the world is will and idea. And you have to put your mind on a rack like a meaningful torture, and you have to just almost, you know, force, torture yourself, force yourself into, into seeing, into clarity, uh, pursuing the truth. So it's not, you know, something that's so easy. It, it's relentless. It's extremely difficult. And that's why groupthink and inertia is much easier. I think you have to challenge that. But you have to challenge it not, you know, like just uh, throwing bricks through a window. You have to be persuasive. Now, sometimes you got to rattle the cage. Somebody used the phrase, you have to break the China to get their attention. Well, sometimes you do, but then you also have to be, bring people along. You've worked for many decades in elected office, outside of elected office, to make the world a better place, to make the world different. You've kept at it over decades. 
starting in 1969 when you were elected to the LA Community College Board of Trustees, through four terms as governor of California. You hosted a radio talk show called We the People. You've served as Attorney General of California, chair of the California Democratic Party. You've done so much over so many decades. Why have you kept at it? Well, I don't want to disappoint you, but I, I find it exciting. I hesitate to even say I fun. I don't want to use the word fun because that's too trivialized. But I thoroughly enjoy what I'm doing. And you make it sound like I'm some noble soul that wants to serve the public. But I ran for office because I wanted to get elected. I was very ambitious. That's the word I would use, ambitious. I ran, I loved my first vote in the primary election in 1969. I won my first election. That, you can call it validation or whatever you want. I really like that. And I like getting elected Secretary of State. I like getting elected governor better. And then I ran for president, of course, and I lost. So yes, I'm trying to, I'm taking these issues seriously, climate, intelligent workings of government, all these things are important. But if I didn't have the, the zest, the excitement, I mean, every day I get up and I'm, I'm excited just to deal with what we're talking about. People say, wait a minute, how can you get excited about nuclear holocaust? Well, nothing is more important than dealing with these profound issues. As a young man, I felt a calling to enter the Jesuit order, the Society of Jesus, because I wanted to deal with the ultimate issue. God, meaning, life itself. So I was drawn to the deepest issues, the apocalyptic issues. I mean, nothing, if you believe in eternal damnation, nothing is more important than avoiding that. So when you start, to, if you think about that, that's a lot more important than what movie or game you're going to. Well, analogously, if we leave these theological issues to the side, we have something very very equivalent if we have a, a nuclear holocaust, if climate disrupts the way human beings are living on the planet, uh, if, the, if the life is synthesized in the laboratory with the help of artificial intelligence by rogue actors and massive plagues are unleashed, and if, or if uh, we have another deep global recession and China and America uh, don't uh, collaborate like they did in 2008, all that's big stuff. And it's more important than the day-to-day issues that people come up with. So I find it a privilege, a pleasure, and uh, a real opportunity to be able to work and even talk about it, think about it. So then when you have your office, whether it's the Junior College Board in Los Angeles about working on, on community colleges and helping kids make, you know, make a better life for themselves, or working on climate as governor of California, it's all part of, of being human in, in ways that uh, strike me as, as significant. You were asked in an interview last year what you enjoyed most in your career. And you immediately said being mayor because you could see things being done in front of you. It was a real place. It's a real place, you said. And this actually is a theme that ran through a couple of our episodes in this series, especially on climate change and threats to democracy. In those interviews, the experts I spoke with suggested that if we want to look for something hopeful, we should look where we are. What do you think about that? Well, I remember looking 
at the wall behind the altar of a black church. And in big gold letters across the back wall, it said, bloom where you are planted. Bloom where you are planted. Be here now. Ramdas talks about. Live the present moment, as uh, we're always told in the spiritual life free from psychologists. So I would recommend being grounded. What is it within your grasp? And I think in the intellectual world, academia, there's a lot of abstraction, and that's good. We have to think, think through uh, large issues, but we're still uh, encased in a concrete body with very specific needs and possibilities. So the immediate is very important. That's also from a Zen perspective, having a cup of green tea. Be present, be aware. That is the highest calling, the highest possibility. But that doesn't mean that there aren't things you do. I mean, you can be a, a carpenter, or you can be a diplomat, or you can be a scientist, or a teacher. So we have multiple dimensions as human beings. But in terms of our own life and its meaning, being present, that is the most difficult of all. But it all comes down to the sensitivity, the awareness, the ability to see and, and not be clouded with our desires and needs and fears. The impetus for this podcast series is IGCC's 40th anniversary. We were founded in 1983. You were instrumental in the conceiving of the UC Institute on Global Conflict and Cooperation as a center for peace research, as a center for analysis, dialogue. I wonder, in terms of your, your legacy with IGCC, 40 years is a long time. The world has changed. Why do you think an institute like IGCC is relevant? And where do you hope to see us go over the next 40 years? Look, I started what I call the Peace Institute. That was what we were talking about. Where did it come from? It came from the debate at the Board of Regents of the University of California about the weapons contracts and the weapons labs of Los Alamos and Livermore, principally, where the weapons are designed. And there was a demand very strong demand for the university to separate from those labs. The regions voted. I voted to separate from the labs uh, on the part of the university. I lost. So as kind of a consolation prize, we decided let's take some of the money that goes to the labs and create a peace institute. That's where the idea came from. So the idea of your institute is to counteract uh, the power of uh, weapons. I think this institute has to explore all the ways that we create a stable world. Not just a world that can compete, but a world that can be peaceful. And we don't hear the word peace anymore. That's, that's almost like a, a, a word that can't be used, but it's a good word, peace. And even though you don't have that in your name, it wouldn't be taken serious. Uh, peace is what we want, not war, and not getting ready for war with all of these multiple conflicts that we're now encouraging and cementing. Governor Jerry Brown, 
Thank you for being with us on Talking Policy. Good, well, thank you. But I hope we illuminated a little bit. There's no one thing that will solve the problems we face. But the point of this series isn't to leave listeners depressed and overwhelmed. As Susan Shirk said in episode one, human agency is a big part of what determines the course of history. And what that means is nothing is set in stone. Nothing is inevitable. Not the good things like democracy or the bad things like wars. The future is unwritten and it's up to us to write it. And in whatever sphere of influence we have, we have the chance to do what Jerry Brown said, to see possibility in the midst of an uncertain world. Thanks for listening to The State of the World, a special mini-series from Talking Policy. I'm your host, Lindsay Morgan. This episode was produced by Anna Van Dyne, production manager, Gabriella Montequin, mixing and sound design by Alex Brower. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar. Talking Policy is a production of the Institute on Global Conflict and Cooperation at the University of California. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.